Have you ever uh, had anyone try to sell you something? And, and you kind of knew they didn't really believe in it. And they're, and they're really trying to sell it. It's maybe a car lot. And, and they're telling you how wonderful this junker is. And they are, man, they are selling it really, really hard. And you're like, man, I can tell that they don't really believe what they're saying. Or a furniture store. Well, this piece of furniture is going to last you a lifetime. And is any very few people have furniture last a lifetime without getting messed up, especially a couch, something like that. And, and they seem to have all of the right things to say. They had all the knowledge. They answered all of your questions, and, and they were there. But you could really kind of tell they didn't believe what they were really selling. Or maybe they seemed really sincere at the time, and you bought that thing. And then you're walking out, and you hear them go to their colleague and say, hey, got another sucker right there. You know, I was able to, to convince them, too, and you realize, wow, there was an integrity there. And sincerity and integrity are of the utmost importance in the Christian life. It is so, so important. As servants of Jesus Christ, we must be sincere in our love for him and our service for him. It must be deeper than just our mind. If it's just our mind, then our heart is far from him. That's not enough. That's not true salvation. We must be born again and walk through the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, today we're going to see Paul and his companions defend their motives as they had just planted this church in Thessalonica. If you recall, uh, they were on their church planning journey, and it got cut short as they, they go from Philippi to Thessalonica, and they end up getting thrown out of the city fairly early into their church planning ministry. And so this letter is probably written a year to two after, maybe a year and a half after their attendance there. And there were some things being said about them that they were not sincere, that they were not this. And they want to remind them, hey, you know how we came to you, and we can learn a lot about how to be a sincere servant of Jesus Christ as we go through this. Let's go ahead and pray and get into God's Word. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace. Thank you I just that, that you don't leave us hanging, that, that, that you tell us how to live this Christian life. You don't just say, hey, go do it. Uh, you know, there's uh, expectations that I haven't really given you. I haven't given you any commands. I haven't given you any direction. But God, no, you gave us the entire, your entire Word of 66 books here to be able to study and learn. And it's not burdensome. It's a blessing. And if we see it as burdensome, we're never going to grow uh, the way we need to. But we need to see it as, as, as gold that we want to dig for, that we want to get into, uh, just things that just will change our life and, and help us to know more about who you are and change our relationship with you, help us to know you better, help us to grow in our, in our walk with you, God. And so as we, as we study your word today, may you open up our hearts and our minds both, uh, not just our minds, just to learn and take in knowledge to puff us up, but, but may it go into our minds and sink down into our hearts and change uh, who we are on the inside, because only you can do that through your Holy Spirit. We love you, Lord. Amen. So there's a lot to learn about being a servant of God as we enter this section of Paul's letter, and I'm going to go ahead and jump into the first point here. As servants of God, we should be willing to suffer like Christ. We should be willing to suffer like Christ. And I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 and 2 in chapter 2 here in 1 Thessalonians. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So Paul has just finished this section of Thanksgiving that we went through last week, if you were here. And, and we, we, we learned about how thankful he was, the, the joy that he had for this people in Thessalonica. And now he wants to point back that this was not in vain. His church playing journey, he and Silas and Timothy, they didn't do this just in vain. There were, there were results that came from this. Uh, we, we, we see throughout this 1 Thessalonians 1.9, the last one we saw that, 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 that it, they turned away from idols. 
So these unbelieving uh, Thessalonians had turned away from idols and turned to the one true God. We talked about how there were probably up to 25 different deities, and they gave them up for the one true God, Yahweh. And then we saw in Acts 17, 4, that even some Jews also believed. And he reminds them of the suffering that they'd went through before they even got there. And he says, as you know. So obviously, as they approached there, they're like, hey, this is what happened in Philippi. They, they, were, they were put in jail after sharing the gospel, after casting out a demon from a slave girl who was a fortune teller. Uh, they, they rise up and they throw him in jail. They're, they're flogged. And then they're miraculously released. Uh, people come to Christ, the church gets planted there, but they pretty much get saying, hey, you need to get out of here before you get killed. And so then they come to Thessalonica, and the same thing happens again, and yet he wants to let them know we were bold, and, and we continue despite suffering, despite opposition. We had integrity. We were sincere. We continued to preach the gospel even when people were trying to kill us, trying to take our lives. And I love this quote from the old theologian Matthew Henry. He says this, suffering in a good cause should rather sharpen than blunt the edge of holy resolution. There's no better cause than the gospel, my friends. And what, what, what Matthew Henry's alluding to and what we see happen in Paul and Silas and Timothy, when persecution came, it sharpened them. It did not dull them. They didn't flee because they were true believers. It actually sharpened them and made them even more on point of what they wanted to do. It should not d- diminish our resolve, but it should increase our resolve to share the gospel. And I want to sh- kind of focus in on something, too. Like, Paul, Paul isn't bragging, saying, hey, we had this great megachurch that formed there. We, you know, we, we, it wasn't in vain that way. What he's saying here is their, their mission was not in vain because they did it with boldness and with the power of God. Anything we do in the power of God is not in vain. When we do it in our own strength, when we do it for our own accolades, oh, well, we did this, and this many people came out, and I've shared the gospel, and this many people, you know, we put those notches on the belt we see a lot of evangelists do and say, oh, yeah, we, we had a thousand people get saved last, last year, and, 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 you know, it's all about numbers. It's all about how great I am. I must be such a gifted communicator because when I speak, droves come forward. It's like, no, it's about the Word of God. It's about God's power. It's not about us. It's not about our own glory. It's about Him. And, he, and sometimes when we serve God, it's not quite as obvious. We don't see people necessarily flock to God, but it's still not in vain because the word does not return void. We still should proclaim the gospel in the face of suffering. And, and, and the reason that we still do it in the face of suffering is I really feel like suffering and afflictions are the litmus test of a true believer. So, you know, when things are going well, it, it, it's pretty easy to do quote-unquote, what's right. When, when you do something right and you have a good, good things that come out, go, oh, this, is, this is pretty good. But whenever suffering and affliction come, comes and, and you start getting squeezed, it becomes a little more apparent of what's really in there. And I think Jesus says this so well when he talks about the parable uh, of, of the foundations. When we're looking at the house upon the rock and the house upon the stone, let's just read through it really quick because I think this is a, a neat take on this, a neat application to this. The, the truth of this parable is the same that the foundation is on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. But there's a great, great application that we can kind of pull out here too. Let's so go ahead and read, read along with me here. Matthew seven twenty four through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Right, everybody knows this. We're going to start singing a song here in a minute, aren't we? And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. 
You see, both the wise man and the foolish man experience storms here, right? Afflictions, suffering, whatever that is, a storm of life came and swept in that house. It could be literal, or it could, but here we know it's more figurative because we put our life on Jesus Christ. Jesus is teaching, don't build your life on the things of this world. Build it on me. Build it on the solid rock who I am. And, and because he, he is, he always has been, he always will be, he's the one sure foundation to build your life upon. But they both had a storm hit. And, and I would say before the storm, and you're looking at these two houses, I would almost argue probably the house that was built on the sand probably looked nicer. You know, almost like a beach house, you know. And, and you think about it, because false, false converts, they hang the stuff on the outside. So, oh, I gave this money to this church. I gave this money to this school. I gave this money to this homeless shelter. I got a plaque on that shelter because of what I did. That animal shelter, oh, yeah, I gave over here. And so I'm sure the outside had a ton of accolades. And, and man, people looked at the house and were like, man, that's a nice house right there. I bet there's just beautiful things inside because look how pretty that, that house is on the outside. Yet it was built on the sand. It was built on an unsure foundation. It was built on the world when we were looking. I would argue probably the house that was built on the rock maybe was a little more simple looking because we're told that our good works are to be hidden. We're not to let our left hand know what our right hand's doing. We're, we're told not to broadcast what we're doing for Jesus Christ. And so I bet there were really nice things inside the house, but on the outside, probably looked like a normal house. But, but yet when the floods hit, what happened to the quote-unquote nice beach house? Uh, it crashed. It came crashing down because it was not built on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. The storms of this life, affliction and suffering, are the litmus test of whether something is legit or not, whether a believer is legit or not. And I think we really need to think about our own lives. Wh where, how, what have we built our lives on? Is it on this? Is it on Jesus Christ and his word? Or is it in the world? Because here's the thing. Suffering and affliction, I can promise you, they're going to come. But no matter who you are, it's going to come. I mean, you even look at like some of the most successful billionaires most of them have gone, th gone through divorces. I'm sure those were really tough on them. You know, I'm sure there were, there were issues in their life. I, I'm sure they've had things at their company that, that, that have been tough on them, sufferings, afflictions, different times. But, but we see what, what, it, what truly is in the heart of someone when those things come, and you see where that foundation really is and whether it is a great fall or whether it, is, it actually sharpens someone and actually makes them even more resolved to serve Jesus Christ. When someone begins to attack your faith, the question I have is, do you back down? Do you say, well, okay, you know, I'm, I'm not really that convinced anyway. Or, or do you give these nice postmodern answers where it's like, oh, well, I know that's your truth. Uh, you know, I've got my truth. You've got your truth. We can just, you can believe your truth. And I think your truth is probably right like mine, even though they're contradictory. Or do you stand firm on the foundation of Jesus Christ saying, no, that this is what the Bible says. Jesus Christ stood firm to the end. Obviously, we know the consequence of that. That, that he suffered, and he calls us to do the same. So, my friends, as servants of God, we should be willing to suffer like Christ and suffer in the way Christ suffered by standing firm in God. Number two, as servants of God, we should be sincere like Christ. And let's go ahead and read verses three through six. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we've been approved by God, to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So Paul 
Paul spends an incredible amount of time in these three verses talking about the sincerity of him and Silas and Timothy. And there's a lot we can learn from Paul here, and I want to kind of break down four different do-nots in ministry and in service to the Lord, because I think we really learn these from here. And, And as sincere servants of Christ, we should not, number one, do not serve from error, impurity, or in an attempt to deceive. I'm going to read verse 3 again. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. So as Paul, Paul starts off by letting him know, we're not trying to deceive you, Thessalonica church. Like we, we came with, with, with purity, not impurity. We, we came not to speak error, but the truth of God's message in purity and undefiled. And each of us needs to remain pure in an impure world. We have impurity all throughout our culture. It can sneak in the back door. It can come through the front. It can, it can come through your mail slot. I mean, there is impurity everywhere. And, and so we cannot let that impurity saturate our gospel message and change it. And we're seeing a lot of churches let that happen, where the impurity of this world and the false beliefs and hollow philosophies of this world start to, start to gradually work its way into the gospel and become something the gospel isn't. And it becomes a false gospel, a false message. And we need to make sure that we come in that same way of purity, not, not impurity. If we look, at, if, we, or if we are seeking to deceive, if we start to become even dece- de- deceived ourselves, we deceive others, we're no different than Satan. We see 2 Corinthians 4, 11, 14. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And we see those impurities, that they're hidden by the light and this false light. It's not a real light, but it's a false light. And there's so much out there that seems like it's good teaching, but it's really nothing more than a false light. It's nothing more than a mirage like Satan. Pray that we're not like that. Number two, sincere servants do not serve as people pleasers, but instead serve to please God. And I'll read verse four again. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So people pleasers are some of the, 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 the worst kind of deceivers because they're deceived themselves. And, and, and whenever you're deceived yourself and you're trying to please people, you can be the worst type of deceiver. And, they, and people pleasers will do anything that they can to gain the affections of those that they are trying to reach. And they'll do anything they can. And a lot of times they, they believe their own fabricated stories. Uh, they get themselves so far in that, they, that they're so focused on other people and what they think and how they're doing that they do that. And he wants the church to know that they don't seek to please people. They seek to please God. And listen to what actually Paul says about this uh, in Galatians 1.10. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I mean, that's a tough statement. So Paul says, if, if you are seeking to please people, that's completely incompatible with seeking to please God because they're diametrically opposed. Seeking to please people, you're going to compromise. Seeking to please God, you're not. You're going to stand firm on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. And he wants them to know that, that, that the main motivating factor between his, for, for his and Timothy's and Silas's ministry is Jesus Christ. It, it is the will of Jesus Christ. And note, we, we as followers of Christ are to serve people on behalf of Christ. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about people. We're to be his hands and his feet. But may we never miss that our job is not to please people. 
people. It's to serve people. But when we serve people, that doesn't mean we're always pleasing people. Uh, and, and I think I, that nothing really, I think, applies this or illustrates this, I'll say, better than a study that I, I had actually in, in medical school, actually residency, that I saw here. And there, there was a, a journal article in 2011, the Archives of Internal Medicine, and it showed that patient satisfaction, as it got better, patient mortality went up. In other words, the happier you made your patients, you did what they wanted you to do as fast as you wanted to do and the way that they wanted you, wanted you to do it, you know what happened? They died faster. So what people want actually kills them. And, and, and that, I mean, this is, it was a study done in a journal in medicine. So when you go to your doctor and you really want what you want, eh, if they say no, you probably ought to stick with that doctor because that may be somebody actually trying to keep you alive. But the same thing, the same uh, principle is so applicable to life in general. What do people want to do? Well, they want to sleep around. They want to do what they want to do. They, they want to be able to do drugs or drink as much alcohol as they want to or smoke as much as they want to or whatever that is. You know, do whatever. They want to lie. They want to cheat. They want to do it. And if you say, oh, go do what you want to do, what happens? Their mortality increases. And by that meaning, hell increases. The, w- whenever you give yourself over to the things of this world, well, then you are of this world, and you're not of your Father, right? And, and, and so, so we need to be telling people, hey, the gospel in this world are, are, are not able to mesh. No, it, it's, it's the gospel or this world, and you have to make a choice. To be truly saved, it is be born again. It means your old self is cast off, and your new self is put on. You can't just say, well, I'm going I'm to put Jesus in this box, and I, I'm going to have everything else in these others. No, Jesus has to take over the whole thing the entire thing. There, there, there cannot be both inter, intertwined because Jesus can't be united to sin. He's not going to be there. So if you're a true believer, you're going to continue to sin, yes, because your flesh is still here, but the Spirit of God will be in you and convict you, and you will repent time and time again. You will sin, and you will repent, and you will sin, and you will repent, but, but, but God will continue to direct you and guide you. And I just pray that this is a lesson for us, that, that we're not people pleasers, but, but that we're pleasers of God. And know that by sharing the gospel, it might not make people happy. When you say, hey, you know, every other religion in this world is false. Uh, Muhammad is not, he was not a true prophet of, of God. Allah is not Yahweh. Allah is made up. Uh, when you say things like that, it's going to bring hate. It's going to bring uh, controversy. When you say Mormonism is not a true religion, Jehovah's Witnesses are not a true religion, Buddha is not a, a godlike man. He was not, you know, it, all these things. Hinduism is not real. There aren't multiple gods. When you start making those comments and you say, hey, but Jesus is God, and he is the only way and the truth and the life, that's not going to please people in our postmodern world where everybody's right and everything's okay. That's not going to make people happy. But here's the thing. By sharing the truth of God's word, their soul may be saved from hell. And we need to care more about that, more about other people in that way, because that's caring about people the way God cares about them, not about their happiness, but more about their holiness and their, their eternal life. Number three, sincere servants of Christ also do not serve with words of flattery, with pretext, or with greed. And let's go ahead and read verse five again. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext or greed, God is witness. Again, Paul invokes God as a witness. I mean, that's pretty impressive. When you can say God as a witness, this is what happened. Like when you call God to the stand to witness for you, you better be pretty confident in what you're saying. That's what I'm saying. So, so he he never he says he never came with words of flattery. And during Paul's time, flattery was really despised. 
And, and today I'd say it probably isn't despised as much as it should be. People seem to be okay with flattery, and that's it's kind of it's really dangerous. It's really scary that how how people are okay with that. Uh, but the issue with flattery is it's really a cover up for greed. And we don't necessarily think about flattery that way. But, but it's a way to puff others up in order to manipulate the situation for your own gain of power or financial. Uh, flattery involves changing the message in order to make it more attractive to the hearers. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's humanism is a form of flattery, to be honest. If we're looking at humanism, everything starts and ends with humans and humanisms, right? Uh, in, in, the, in the study of humanism. And so it scratches the itch of pride that man has had since the garden in Genesis 3, since the fall. The, me- the message of the gospel, though, is the exact opposite of flattery. Uh, it's outright unflattering to humans, to be honest, because w- what it says is it says we're all depraved, we're all sinners, we all deserve hell, no one is good, not even one. There's nothing even good in us apart from God, and that's not so flattering for us, is it? I mean, and people don't like to hear that they're bad. I mean, you ask probably 100 people if they're good, 90-some percent, sadly, even Christians, 90-some percent are going to say, yeah, I'm good, better than him better than her, you know, like, you know, and so, so we're, we're, we're so quick to think that we're good, but the word of God is very clear that we're not, that Christ is good, but, but we are not, and praise God, if we are in Christ, God sees us as righteous because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, but our old self was nothing good, there was nothing good in that, that's why it was cast off, and our flesh, frankly, is still marred by sin, and so our flesh is still bad as well, and so praise God, that will be cast off on the first death, and our, we won't have a second one. We'll be in heaven if we're in Christ. But I pray that we don't butter up our hearers for shameful gain. And I pray that we speak the truth, albeit in love, but never devoid of truth. And lastly, sincere servants of Christ do not serve for glory or praise from man, even when you may have done something that would justly bring it. And I love that that Paul puts here, it says, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. And so Paul was chosen by God, by Jesus Christ himself, blinded on the road to Damascus, as we see in Acts 9. I mean, how, how amazing is that? So if anybody could say, hey, I deserve some glory, I deserve some praise, I'm chosen by God personally. He blinded me, and, and he revealed himself to me. He spoke his word to me, and now he's putting his word through the Holy Spirit in my pen right now as I write. I mean, if anybody could say, we deserve this, and the other two were sent out ones. They're little A apostles, not big A apostles like Paul, but they could even say, hey, we were sent out with Paul. We're, we're sent out with a big guy. Like, we matter, but they don't. They reflect all that glory to God. It's not about them. They, they could have made demands, but they said, we didn't seek glory from people. We, we want a God to get all of the glory. And why do you serve Christ, brothers and sisters? God is more interested in our heart than what we do. The, the why is just as, if not more important, than the what of what we do. Yes, God has called us to action. We, we need to be, we're commanded to serve God. We're commanded to do what God calls us to do. But I pray that we never seek our own glory. That we seek glory from him. For, for actually, I think one of the worst forms of idolatrous sin we can, can perform is to seek our own glory as we serve Christ. So throughout these four subpoints, we've learned from Paul what we should do as sincere servants of Christ, what we should not do, really, as sincere servants of Christ. And finally, we get to our last point here. As servants of God, we should be servants like Christ. Servants like Christ. And I'm going to read verses 7 through 12 to finish this out here. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. 
So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his, into his own kingdom and glory. So I know that's a lot of scripture, and we're going to kind of break it down here and study it into three different sections. And so Paul gives a, a threefold explanation comparison of how he and his companions served the, the church in Thessalonica. And these three ways are all familial in nature, which is pretty neat, and I think it'll really kind of... Uh, hopefully apply well as we go through it. So the first one is gentle as an infant. And and we have two different verses here. So verse 7, it says, but we were gentle among you. And this word gentle actually is the same Greek word for infant or young child. And so it's like gentle as an infant. And and, and if we jump ahead, uh, we we see that they were harmless. And we we look at verse 10, which kind of goes with the same thought. It says, you are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Paul and his companions served gently and above reproach. You know, they, they, they came innocently. They didn't come for shameful gain or for pride. And think about like a newborn baby. You can't look at a newborn baby and bring an accusation against that newborn baby and say, that baby just lied to me. Brandon, you lied to me. Even, even, at, even at his age, like, it, it, that, that would be out, you know, preposterous. You know, you'd be like, that's outlandish. You're going you're gonna to try to testify that, that Brandon told a lie and, and just, just lied to us right now? It's like they want to say, hey, we were like that. We were as innocent as a baby. You know, you can't even bring a charge against us because we came, uh, you know, with no, with no ill intentions. We came as innocent babies. And we need to serve with that type of purity as the church. We need to serve that, that accusations can't come in because we come with the right motives, not with, with vulgar language or, or, or gossip or greed or, or seeking praise. But I pray that our service is always pure and undefiled and directed by Christ. And the next familial relationship we see Paul use is affectionate like a mother, really a a nursing mother we see here. So let's read 7b through 9. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So Paul's just asserted their, their gentleness and their innocence. And now he goes, the next step, he goes to the next step and he talks about their affection to the church. And I don't think there's probably a better analogy than one he chooses here. He talks about a nursing mother with her children. He talks about toiling day and night. Any, any moms in here can amen to toiling day and night with a newborn? Yeah, I mean, that is a lot of work. It, it is selfless, sacrificial work as Ashley's like, yeah, I'll be right there. Don't, just don't, don't worry about it. It's coming up. Uh, you know, and so, so it, it, is, it is selfless work. And nobody looks at that baby like, you know what, uh, your mom is such a burden on you. I can't believe she wakes you up and feeds you. Like, good grief, you were such a burden. And, and, that, and that's like the church of Thessalonica trying to look at Paul and them saying, y'all were such a burden on us. It's like, no, he's like, no, we were affectionate. We were sacrificing our time, our, our abilities, and we, we were serving you all, and we were not a burden to you. We did everything we could to not be that. And, and, and they, they serve the church with that kind of sacrifice. 
They gave themselves. They gave everything that they had. And I love that Paul uses that simile, like, like a nursing mother. And for you non-English buffs like myself that have to look things like this up, um, I loved uh, J- Jim gave us, uh, what was it, bad, badder and baddest. You know, I was like, okay, this is a good English lesson from the engineer. I give the same types of, 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 of lessons as a doctor. I, I just... Like, uh, luckily, I just spent a little time here. But a simile, in case you're wondering, I've learned something new here. It uses like or as, uh, whereas a metaphor doesn't when you're looking at comparison. Sorry to blast you, Jim. It was, it was just good, though. I loved it. It just seemed to fit right in with the message. Um, so this simile it was used to show their love for the church and for the people. It, it was a true example of agape love, sacrificial love. We can learn, we can learn a lot from Paul and his companion service to the church here. When we serve others, do we truly serve them with our whole heart and sacrificially? Or do we just offer our leftovers? It's like, okay, when I serve, I'm going to do everything I need to do first, and then the church gets my leftovers. Okay, this, I've, I've done everything I wanted to do. Now, all right, you know, whether it's your, your, your giving of your time, your finances, your energy, relational, you know, relationally, like what, what do we do there? And I think this concept of, of foregoing our own wants and even sometimes our needs for a short period of time, as we see a nursing mother who kind of gives up her needs, too, because moms need sleep. I know we don't necessarily think that because it seems like they're invincible, and they just seem to be able to go without sleep for a while. But, but moms do need sleep, despite that. From a medical standpoint, they need to sleep. Uh, dads, step up a little bit. Try to help, you know, when we can. Uh, you know, there's some things we can't do. Sorry, moms. Um, but, but despite what the world says, there's some things we can't do, um, and we'll just leave it at that. But, but in our world of, of selfishness, we, we see that there are countless books that talk about how, how you can care for yourself, how, how yourself needs this, and podcasts and things. Well, you need this, and this is how you can be happy. This is how you can be rich. This is how you can be successful. And, and it falls right at the feet of the God of our society, which is self. And, and we have to really go against that because the Bible teaches the exact opposite. The Bible teaches that we're not to worship self. Instead, we're to worship Jesus Christ. And, and, and when we serve him, and then we first, and then we serve others as well. And, and when we do that, we become less and less focused on self, and we're able to trust him to provide for our needs. But, but how hard is it not to be anxious about our own needs and our own wants? It's really, really hard. We live in a world where there's just so much stuff out there, and this person has this, this person has this, and, well, I, might, I need that. You know, a lot of needs now are, are really not needs. They're, they're wants, but we've made them needs, and it's so hard not to be anxious, and it's like, oh, you know, uh, how, how am I going to know that this gets taken care of, and this gets taken care of, and this gets taken care of? And anxiety is just so big in our culture. But here's the thing. It's very difficult to be anxious about your own needs when you're focused first and foremost on the Lord and you're focused on serving others. W- when those are your two, number one, one and two, and, and you're outwardly focused, anxiety seems to fall away. Because all of a sudden you realize, hey, God, God will start, he'll just provide for your needs. It's amazing. When you focus on him first and others second, God will meet your needs. Your needs will be met. It's just miraculous how he does that. It's so amazing. And my wife and I were discussing a verse that kind of really, I think, is applicable to this this past week. Matthew 6, Jesus says this, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I think we've, we've sang this song, I'm sure, in churches. We've, we've, we've memorized the verse if you've been in church for a while, and you've heard this taught so, so many times that sometimes we just gloss over it and we don't really apply it. But, but we see here, when we seek first God and we seek the things of God, his kingdom namely, you will find rest. And, and everything else 
will be added unto you. All the other things, when you aim, we're talking, you look at a bullseye, and, and when you look at that bullseye, a lot of times the bullseye, like the middle, will be black. And, and, but then you see red and white, and, and there's some, sometimes there'll be numbers on it, depending on what kind of dartboard you're looking at or what, what you're shooting at for archery. And, and it's so easy to miss, to miss the black in the middle and, and start looking at all the other stuff. Oh, there's a 21 right there. If I hit that, you know, but the, the bullseye is 100. Like, why are you going for the 21 when there's 100 right there? You know, it's like, and, and so we can get so focused on all the mess around that we miss the mark, that, that we miss what, what God really has for us. And what God really has for us is himself. And we aim at Christ and all the other things will be added unto you. When you aim at the mark, God will provide for the rest. The th- other things you're anxious about, they'll fall into place. God, God will take care of them in the way that he takes care of them, and it'll be for your good, as we see in Romans eight twenty eight. Our focus needs to be on the bullseye. It needs to be on Jesus Christ, the only one who, who, who is the way, the truth, and the life, the only one who, who we have hope in. Don't focus on the other stuff. Seek God first. And finally, Paul brings up the concept of being authoritative as a father. Verses 11 and 12 again. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So the final of Paul's familial references ends with fathers. And we discussed what a godly father looked like in our biblical family uh, sermon as we taught through Colossians. And fathers are so vital to a family. Yes, mothers are irreplaceable, as we just talked about in the last one. A lot of things we can't do, fathers, right? And, and, and mothers are irreplaceable and important. But fathers are equally important, and they're, they're important for leaders of the family, for protectors of the family. Good fathers do that. And we see that really spelled out really well on these two uh, verses here. Uh, we see that Paul addresses uh, an authority that he and his companions had along with the church in Thessalonica. And he uses two words here. If we look, if we look here, we see exhorted and, and charged. Exhorted and charged. And this word exhorted means to urge on. So they urged on the church to follow Christ and live holy lives. And then the, the Greek word translated charged means to insist upon. Uh, so, so we see that he, he urged them on and he insisted them upon serving as an, with an authority. And just as the father is a leader by authority in the, in the family, we are to serve with authority as well. I'm going to let that sit there for a second. We're to serve with authority as well. And I think a lot of you, some, some of you, especially maybe dads, you just sat there and you were like, I like that verse. I like this idea of fathers and authority. And if that was where you just got excited, you just said, all right, I'm, I'm in. Or even as just a believer, and you're like, I'm, I'm able to have authority over other people. This is great. Well, I think you probably need to take a moment and have some silent repentance. And so we're just going to take a moment of silence here and repent for, for being excited about having authority. So let's just, okay, I think that's good. So, so now, now, now that we're back, uh, back on track, we serve not in our own authority, not that we are the end-all, be-all, that we have servants and we tell people what to do. And this is what, we serve with the authoritative word of God. Our authority comes from him. And, and so as Paul talks about serving like a father here, what he's saying is, it's not that he has this incredible authority because he's great and he's awesome. He serves with the authoritative word of God. And so when we, sh- when we share the gospel with other people, when we lead other people to Christ, when we talk about things of God with other people, we are able to do that with authority. Not our own authority, but the authority of the word of God, the authoritative word of God. We do it with affection, like a mother, as we saw before. We take authority of the word of God, affectionate love, and we come with innocence as an infant, as we've just addressed. 
But that authority is, is so important. But then we also see one other word kind of sprinkled in between these two authoritative words, and that word is encouraged here. And this Greek word encouraged actually can also mean comfort, so to comfort someone else. And, and that, that's so important to see that too because as a father, your job's not just to be an authority. And, and as we share the gospel, our job's not to just authoritatively drop the hammer of the word of God on someone, but we're also to comfort other people as well. And, and I don't think there's really a better way to, to kind of illustrate this than when, my, when a couple of my children were younger. I used to have to work overnight, and, and sometimes I'll, I'd, I'd do that, where I'd have to work overnight at the hospital. And, and, and my, my children sometimes would really become uncomfortable when I wasn't there. Yes, mom was there, as she always is, and she al- she's always been great at being there and giving them that assurance, but, but they, they had that a lo- loving and affectionate mother, but they didn't have their father to provide that comforting, authoritative protection that they longed for. And so when we serve as a father, there's also a pastoral side to this. When we share the gospel with somebody, there also needs to be a pastoral comfort. Hey, here is the gospel, but then there needs to be a caring, a, a comfort there that says, hey, Jesus loves you. There's an affectionate, the aff- affection there. There's innocence there. It's all pure. It's not to try to just beat somebody down. It's serving with comfort. When we serve like a father in that way, we serve with the authority of God, but also with the comfort and pastoral care from God. And lastly, Paul and his companions charged the church to walk in a manner worthy of God. That's a hard one. There's no higher calling than that statement right there. Uh, the God who calls us into his own kingdom and to share in his glory calls us to walk in a manner worthy of him. Obviously, if you've lived life for more than three seconds, you probably realize you can't do that. And if you've tried and you fell and you fell and you fell and you fell, and you fell again, you realize that we can't in our own strength and our own abilities ever walk in that type of way. But we should still seek to conduct ourselves in a way that brings God glory. And we do this by allowing the Holy Spirit to work in us and the fruits of the Spirit, as Galatians 5, 22-23 shows us. But however, but it's through salvation through Jesus Christ that we're seen as worthy. Not that we are worthy in ourselves, but Jesus Christ is worthy and took our sin on the cross. And that is the, the comfort of the gospel. We talked about the authority of the gospel. The authority says Jesus is the only way. You're going to hell if you don't have Jesus Christ. That's authority of the word of God. It drops the hammer. As we talked about last, last week, the acts of judgment is over your head, and it will ex- execute judgment if you do not have Christ ab- abolish that judgment or take that judgment for you. But the comfort, the beauty of that is that Jesus did he took it for all of us. For, for God so loved the world, they died on the cross, right? Like, so, so, so we look at that. They, you know, he, he gave his life for us. How amazing is that, that he has done that? And, and how comforting is that? That, yes, God is fully just, and sin must be uh, accounted for. And there's comfort in that, right? And, and so, so when, when my children were at home, and they were comforted because I was there, why were they comforted because I was there? Because they knew if somebody broke into our house, that, that I had a gun under my bed and that I was going to go after him, that I wasn't just going to let them be taken, you know, that I was going to be authoritatively protective of my family, right? There's comfort in that. So that authority still needs to come. There's comfort in the word of God being authoritative, but then there's also comfort in the fact that they knew that I loved them and I would never use that to harm them, right? And so if you were in Christ, God is fully just, but he's also fully love and compassion. And when you are in Christ, the judgment, the wrath of God is forever removed from you. You don't have to fear your father.
because he loves you. And yes, he'll discipline you. I don't know about you all, but I've been disciplined a lot. Uh, you know, when I, whenever I'm kind of hard-headed, sometimes it takes the two by four a couple times, to, right about here, before I start doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm a little stubborn at times. I don't know. Sometimes that happens. Um, but, but, but God loves you. He, he doesn't punish you. He took the punishment on the cross. He disciplines you for your good. He loves you. And you don't have to worry. You don't have to fear your father who loves you. And we are considered worthy and holy because of his great work on that cross. And praise God, his righteousness is credited to our accounts. And I, tr- I pray that everyone here is saved and they can, they can claim that. And I pray that if you are saved, I pray that you walk like it. Our witness before a lost world is of great importance. In closing, I want to leave with this, this last quote from theologian G.K. Beale, who said the following, Ironically, one of the greatest obstacles to the spread of the gospel is the church itself. It is not hard to recall Christian leaders from the past 20 years who have been so immoral and greedy that even the world itself has been repulsed. Friends, may, may we be sincere servants of Jesus Christ. May, be, may, may, may we be walking and serving in a manner worthy of God as we do this by being willing to suffer like Christ, being sincere like Christ, and being servants like Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace. Lord, if anyone here is not in you, Lord, that that they've not repented of their sins and and turned to you as the only way of salvation, God, who who died on the cross 2,000 years ago for our sins and raised three days later is now at the right hand of the Father, if they've not placed their trust and faith in you, I would love to talk to him about that today. Please, please approach me if that is you. Uh, If there's anyone here who who's struggling with, with, their, with their walk, uh, that's that, that struggling with, with the world and the things of this world and the anxieties that kind of come, God, I pray that you comfort them, that they see your authority as a father, just how wonderful you are, but also your comfort as a father, and that they're able to show that to others too. Lord, help us to be sincere servants for you, Lord, and to glorify you with all that we have. It's in your awesome name we pray. Amen. Have a blessed week.